As has already been noted a bit earlier in the announcements, what a joyous occasion we have this morning to come together on, an, on a circumstance as this one is, the first day of the week in which we have not only the command but the privilege of assembling in the name of the God of heaven and offering a worship unto his mistress and majestic name. We, as is often the case, are blessed with visitors, and certainly for you, we're thankful for your presence, as we are for the membership at Pippin. And if those that are visitors have questions about our congregation, the things that are done, feel free to ask one of our elders or members, and we will try our best to get you directed to the one who would be able to provide you the answers to those questions. And as is also mentioned in the prayer even, let us not forget our gospel meeting that now stands a mere 14 days into the future. Two weeks from today, Brother James Watkins will be with us, and for that we're so excited to consider the possibilities of the gospel as he proclaims it so powerfully and yet simply. Let us again be busy inviting those about us that they may take advantage of the wonderful opportunity to come and be with us. As we consider the time of our lesson this morning, we have arrived at the third installment in the series of lessons on the Beatitudes. And to this point in our study of these, we have been reminded of rather interesting and yet profound truths, not the least of which would be these, that in our study of the Beatitudes, we are touching upon subjects that the world itself may little appreciate, but yet which redound not only to temporal happiness here, but the very nature of godly behavior and have the final end of that which is eternal and wonderful in its scope. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, to address that very point as it relates to the principle of these, Paul there stated that Christ sent be not to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. You and I might be oft reminded then that this which we've seen in the writings of Paul or even in the Beatitudes remind us that so often that which the world considers foolish is that which God shines the blessed glory of His goodness upon. And it is that which, when put into our life, will make us not only happy, but ultimately blessed in the sense of godliness. Through the first six of these Beatitudes, we've been reminded in every instance of something of that nature. For instance, the poor in spirit, those that mourn, those who are meek, those who in fact, as we've seen, hunger and thirst after righteousness, those that are merciful, those who in fact are pure in heart. As we've looked at all the instances of them, we've seen that they touch a dramatic chord as it resonates with that which the world often considers foolish. But we know better, for the promises of God in every instance have been truly marvelous. In fact, have we not seen that theirs is the kingdom of God? Theirs is the ones that will be filled. That's just two of the promises that associate to these Beatitudes. As you've noticed, though, in the lesson for today, we come to the third installment, and thus we'll notice the last three of the Beatitudes this morning. There were a total of nine of them, and... We only have three that remain. They were read to us by Brother Joy as a part of the reading a few minutes ago. I would invite your attention back with me to verse number 9. That will be the first one that we'll consider today. It's the seventh one, though, in order, and so it's that that I've given as the title of the opening part of the lesson. The seventh of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. With regard to the peacemakers and the discussion that relates to these, first we would do well to make certain that we're aware of the definition of peace, 
what it is that's being described. The idea behind the word peace is not terribly foreign to us. It's something that we're familiar with. And the idea here is not foreign to that which we're, with which we understand. For example, this word peace, even in the Greek, identifies a state of harmony, a state of concord. It is, in fact, in some instances, a reference to a state of quietness or tranquility. That statement, as it relates to calmness, of course, stands in direct opposition to strife and to contention, into a state in which there is a great deal of turmoil. Blessed Jesus said, are the peacemakers. The word peacemaker, as the word peace is a part of that word, is identifying one who seeks to make peace, one who strives for peace, one who in fact invests effort and perhaps even sacrifice to the accomplishment of the existence of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. The very thought of peacemakers reminds us how often we pray for and how often we desire peace in our own homes, in our nation, perhaps around the world. Peace is something that the human family, it seems, at least in the main, has a strong desire to acquire and a strong desire in which to, to, to dwell. In fact, isn't it a dramatic distinction if you have had the, the distinct displeasure of so doing to dwell in an environment in which peace is nowhere to be found and then at some time, perhaps in the near future, having had circumstances change, to then dwell in a place where peace was not only known, but it was strongly encouraged. The degree of distinction is so grand and it is so great it is really almost like daylight and dark. Jesus pronounced a blessing on the peacemakers. What is the perspective of heaven toward the nature of peace? Is this something that humans desire but God is rather indifferent to? It would seem not. In Romans 15:33, the very last verse of that noble chapter, the second to the last in the Roman letter, Paul there concluded that chapter by saying, The God of peace be with you. God is a God of peace, one who in His almighty greatness has a desire for it. Notice even the Savior Himself, the Son of God, in Isaiah 9 verse 6, is entitled the Prince of Peace. Jesus called the Prince of Peace. Isn't that a bit interesting on the one hand when, to the very nature of His mother Mary, it was told by Gabriel Himself that He will bring a sword. How could He be called the Prince of Peace? We well understand ultimately what that means. With Jesus, there is no middle ground. He said, you're either for me or you're against me. You either are with me or you scatter abroad, Matthew 12, verses 28 to 30. You and I are either among his army or we're amongst the army of Satan. There is no middle ground. And yet we desire his army is an army that is sent forth with a message of peace. That message is in fact simply called the gospel. Isn't it a beautiful scenario when we see the gospel called the gospel of peace? God is a God of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace and the gospel is the gospel of peace. Notice a few passages that touch that very idea. In Romans chapter 10 verse 15, we find an interesting blessing. Blessed are the feet of those that proclaim the gospel of peace. The nature of that beauty of the gospel reminds us of the interesting scene of how powerful it is. The nature of that gospel perhaps seen in the text of Ephesians 6.15 as well. 
in the description there of the armor that the Christian should wear, we remember one of them is having feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel that you and I so greatly cherish, the gospel unfolded in 27 New Testament books is in fact a gospel of peace. It's based again on the peacefulness of God, sent forth by the very nature of the Prince of Peace, His Son. That peace is perhaps seen in other texts that even reach to my life and yours. It is not just that God desires peace and that Christ desires it as well. In fact, consider my life and yours as it's touched in these passages. In Philippians 4, verse number 7, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall guard your heart. Notice that peace of God is there mentioned by a man who himself at that time was in prison. A man who it seemed felt wonderfully the presence and ever greatness of the nature of the peace God's able to provide. Hours before he was nailed to a cross, Jesus spoke to various of his disciples and said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. Jesus, again, not many hours thereafter, nailed to a cross, and yet He promised that peace He would leave with them. And He went on in that same verse to say, My peace I give unto you. Jesus possessed peace. Have you and I often pondered how that could be? When He was so dramatically assailed by the Sadducees and the Pharisees, there were others on a moment's notice ready to stone Him to death and take His life, and yet He could say that He had peace and He was going to leave with those disciples. That's what the Lord said. That peace, we all know they came to appreciate. When the Holy Spirit came upon them and they became the blessed proclaimers of the only truth that makes men free, they themselves knew of that great peace and were even willing, if it cost them their life, to know the tranquility that guards the follower of the, of the Savior upon this earth. Even Paul himself, an apostle of the Savior, Stated in Philippians chapter 1 that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knew the reward that waited beyond and that peacefulness guarded the every step of his life. Peacefulness, not only spoken of in the Bible, but on this occasion, a blessing pronounced on those that seek to make it. What might we say about those that make peace? A few more comments might in fact be in order. Just as surely as we've seen then that peacefulness is a heavenly attribute, would it not be entirely fair to say, we should thus desire, as we're told in Romans 12, 18, if it be possible, live, at, live peaceably with all men. We should desire as much as rests upon us to live at peace with those about us. It should not be our desire to purposefully agitate and make animosity with others, though we understand that with regard to the Bible there shall be disagreements. There will be those that will not agree with the pronouncements of Scripture. Though tragic that is, and though sad that is, that should not make us ourselves those that specifically seek to agitate and in fact to drive wedges between us and others. The Bible does that. We need not add personal choices and preferences to only exceed that which is already set forth. As much as life in you live peaceably with all men. Isn't it wonderful then, as much as rest with our preference to strive to be at peace with others and to not specifically take vengeance or vengeance upon them? Romans 12, 19 reminds us that that belongs to God. He, at the day of judgment, will set everything in order. If there's vengeance to be taken, 
let God be the one to do it. The notion then of living at peace and striving to make peace, we certainly now cannot take that too far. When there are others who have distinctions and differences between them, it is not our business to put our nose into everybody else's affairs. For we're reminded in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 to not be busybodies in other men's matters. But when it affects us, when perhaps good friends come to us for advice and counsel and we have opportunity to help make peace, we should strive to do so. When we ourselves are such that peace is not between us and others, we should make an intent and a striving to bring about that degree of peace. As we shall, of course, see very shortly, the basis of that peace is to be found better in no other place than the nature of the gospel. In fact, could we not say, the finest foundation on which to make peace, period, is the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Christians, due to the bond of the blood of Christ that dwells within them, appreciate more so than anyone else the beauty that's to be found in the nature of peace. I ask you to notice at the very bottom of that screen with me that in fact if you and I are able to convert others by the teaching of the gospel to, to become Christians, that again is the finest segue to lead them to peace. To know not only that the moving away of animosities can be accomplished and the removal of hostilities is a rare, very real reality, that basis on the gospel will bring all of that about. Perhaps no better example of that in the Bible than is found in the book of Philemon. Here was a man, a slave, who ran away from his master. It was obvious there was some degree of distinction or differences between he and the perspective of Philemon. But yet, when this runaway slave came into contact with Paul, Paul converted that man to the gospel, and then what happened to the hostility that existed between Onesimus and Philemon? We notice that Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon and with him the letter we call the book of Philemon. Notice that Onesimus went back. Whatever differences there had formerly been were now done away with in the gospel. Whatever had caused him to run away was superseded and overcome by the love that he now had with Philemon for the truth of Christ. And as he went back homeward, we have every assurance in the book of Philemon that Philemon accepted him as a brother in Christ, not merely as a slave any longer, though that he still was, but as a brother in Christ. The gospel can help us do away with petty differences and things that tend to divide, when if we're united in the truth, it'll lead us to an understanding that blessed are the peacemakers. Why is that, Jesus? What's the blessing? We notice in verse number 9, they shall be called the children of God. That word children in the Greek simply means sons. They shall be called sons of God. Do you and I enjoy the thought of being a member of God's family and being called the, His son? Not, of course, as though we are like Jesus, but the word sons is used in the New Testament somewhat more broadly than that, as it is in Romans the 8th chapter, that we are joint heirs with Christ and heirs of God. You and I, then, is a desire to be called children or sons of God should seek peace. Peace in our lives, peace in the lives of those whom we may influence. That beatitude perhaps has whetted our appetite for the last two. The eighth of these beatitudes found in verse number 10 is again a brief one. 
If you would, please note the wording of that one with me. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A statement, obviously, again, about a class of individuals, this time those that are persecuted. That word persecute means to molest or to harass, to trouble, to persecute. Jesus said, blessed are they that are persecuted. If we pause at that point and assume that it were to cease there, if that were the case, that would be a rather interesting statement. There are many in our world, of course, that are persecuted, but they're persecuted because of evil they have done. When someone has broken the law, a policeman shows up at your door with handcuffs ready to take you in, and perhaps you find yourself treated meanly, harshly, and perhaps in due order. That's not what the Lord's referring to. That person's being persecuted or harassed, if you will, because he or she has broken the law of the land. That's not the kind of persecution to which our Savior referred. He specifically said, persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now this takes on an entirely different discussion, doesn't it? When that person who is attempting with great diligence to live properly by the commands of the Bible... When that person who in fact strives to conduct himself or herself in a way that is separate and apart from the dictates of ungodliness by virtue of, the, of Satan, it's when that person is persecuted for that reason and that reason only. Jesus said, blessed is that person, verse number 10. That thought alone again is a rather remarkable one. And in fact, isn't it timeless? The world does not like to be told by virtue of what the Bible says that it is wrong. It simply doesn't like it. Culture likes to proceed along the path of least resistance, and it likes to, in fact, do what the political correct thing is to do. It does not like to be challenged and told that that is improper, and that is incorrect, and that is ungodly, and that will not do in the eyes of heaven. There, in fact, are a couple of subjects we're commonly told that we are better off to be pluralistic. One of them is politics, the other is religion. Isn't it odd that we have the freedom to say virtually anything in our land we'd like to say, but just for once try to stand and tell somebody that you are not pleasing in God's eyes because you do not obey the Bible and see how defensive and angry they become. And in fact, there is even intent sometimes to see that the laws of our land are specifically structured with that interesting organization like the ACLU to specifically restrict what can be said in the name of religion. My friend, may it never come to be that that gets any worse than it is. Even to this point, there are certain subjects that are, had better be taboo from their perspective. Who among us is able to condemn homosexuality publicly anymore? Who is able to condemn illicit marriages anymore that God doesn't approve? We can easily see that when you and I speak where the Bible speaks, we're going to find ourselves on the back end, if you will, of those who have a temper that may well persecute us in dramatic fashion. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Doesn't that indicate for us the thought that that isn't new either? We may think that in 20 or 21st century America that perhaps is easy to see, but has it ever been that way? Return with me to the New Testament. 1 John 3.13, that apostle of love said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. 
Thus, it should come as no surprise. It should come as no great shock if the world, in fact, does not approve and find us as its friend and buddy. Jesus himself, again, the night prior to the time he was crucified, said in John 15, 19, he said, You are not of the world, for I have taken you out of the world. Therefore, since ye are not of the world, the world hateth you. Those disciples were not the friends of the world either in that regard. How often were they those that Paul later would describe in the Corinthian letters as the very off-scouring of the world. They'd been imprisoned, beaten, chained, shipwrecked, you name it. In perils of countrymen, perils of men, perils in the city, perils everywhere, and yet many of those due to the persecution of the human family. We see then that today it is no different. If we would be Christians, our lives itself will be a testimony about us to those who will not find it pleasing. Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The famous words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. You and I in the suffering then of persecution can take heart. And I mean that seriously, take heart. Because if that's what we find ourselves in, we are in a long line of devoted servants of the gospel. Those like the apostles who endured persecution. Those perhaps in former days in our land like those of the Restoration Era. We've noticed on Wednesday evenings that more than once, those who at first came out of the denominational world and who came to appreciate the simplicity and the truth of the gospel often found themselves reviled, persecuted, molested, harassed, harshly treated, simply because they no longer felt and believed what they formerly had taught. You and I have noticed that was a noble characteristic in the search for truth. As you and I seek that same thing, might we notice in this very text it goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a fair thing to note again that wonderful promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you and I find ourselves persecuted then because of some righteousness that is us or that we have supported, rather than losing heart and being discouraged and perhaps being urged and influenced to give up our faith and apostatize, this eighth beatitude says, you appreciate the blessing that's yours. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. That indicates a need to keep our eyes focused on the reward ahead. Oh, it's true, the world will assail us round about. And we may, in fact, imagine ourselves like the children of Israel passing through the Red Sea with water piled high on each side. But yet they passed through on dry ground because the God of heaven was with them. Theirs, in fact, was the blessed promise of God's safety and security. And shall it not be so with us? You see, once the storm is over, we sometimes sing that song, when the storm passes by, sometimes life might be described as a set of storms. There shall come a time when it shall have ceased, and we will have come to the point of lying in sweet repose. Will we have died in the Lord? For Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. All that labor will have been worth it in the interest of righteousness. All that labor and persecution shall have redounded in the glory to bring others to the gospel and that we might live favorably forevermore with the God of heaven. Blessed, you see, are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
Do you experience persecution due to your life in Christ? If we find ourselves not able to answer that, yes, maybe there's opportunity to shine brighter for Him. Maybe others don't clearly see enough of what we stand for and who we stand for. Maybe we should speak more boldly, as Paul did in Acts 14.3. Maybe we should speak more powerfully in defense of truth, as he did in Philippians 1.16. All of that might be opportunities we have to bring others to Christ and to help them see what we know and what we stand for. But in a way, that brings us to the last of the Beatitudes. Since the ninth one seems to be an elaboration of the eighth one and somewhat an extension of it, Let's look at it as well and make some final comments about the two together. Verses 11 and 12 of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. One of the things that might well be noted is that the first eight of the Beatitudes were stated in somewhat rather general language in as much as it was third person. But notice he says, blessed are you in this one. It switches now to, if you will, first person. Direct discourse with the ones to whom he was speaking. It's almost as though the Lord is now directing his attention not to a full audience, but to me personally and to you personally. Randy, blessed are you. And you could put your name in place. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The first verb that appears in verse 11 is that word revile. That word means to bring reproach or to reproach. Blessed are ye when men shall reproach you. That word, of course, simply has reference to a number of ideas whereby they might say not the kindest things about you or me. That is to say, they insult, they personally blaspheme, they slander you. Notice that, as we've noted earlier, that can so easily occur. When it comes to matters of religion, that can often lead to great and intense defensive behavior on the part of some. And they might well sling, sling names at you or me. In fact, so angry to us they could become in regard to what we proclaim concerning the Word of God. But it's interesting to note with me in verse 11, when does this blessedness come? Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you. Well, notice he says falsely. It is imperative that those things that they say be waged against you, and it must not be true. If we justly behave ourselves in a way that that's warranted, that's a different story. But when you, in the interest of godly behavior, and in the truth of the Bible, proclaim that which the Scriptures declare, and yet they, in reference to that, say things about you that are not true, Jesus said, blessed are you. And that blessedness is seen in the language of verse 11, for my sake. It is not to gain personal glory. It is not to, in fact, have a name that's known far and wide or to see the pomp and circumstance in it. When a person by humble and righteous and godly living is so approached by revile and persecution and slander, 
that they receive that because they are, in fact, following Christ. That's when it's a blessed thing. And the Lord even goes on to say in verse 12, Rejoice. Not just the fact that you're blessed, but personally, you are able to feel a degree of joy. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Might we pause and ask, isn't that a bit on the difficult side? To be in a position in which others are tarnishing your name and saying things slanderously about you, all because you're a Christian, Jesus said, rejoice and be glad. Why is that such a state for being happy? And why is that an occasion for being in a state of rejoicing? Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why, the Lord? For great is your reward in heaven. One more time reminded those who listened to him that day on that mountain that there is a reward in heaven awaiting those who conduct and behave themselves in a righteous and godly fashion. Regardless what they say about you falsely, though that's certainly no fun, though that's not a pleasant thing to defend oneself maybe, great is your reward in heaven. At this point, there are a number of things then that might be directly applied to my life and yours that touch this in such great ap applications. To you young people, I'll address some thoughts to you first. Please listen carefully. When thus you find yourself in a position and that group of individuals about you who claim to be your friend and who give you great encouragement or urge you to do that which is not a good thing to do, and you have the fortitude to stand against it. And they call you a name. And they have nothing to do with you. Do not forsake what you stand for. They are the ones that will come to honor you in time. And they are the ones that ultimately, if not now, then at the day of judgment, will come to realize that you were right and they were wrong. When they encourage you thus to deface some property or write some ugly expression on a wall, when they encourage you to go to a dance and you refuse to go on the principle that it's not a godly thing to do, well, they want you to say bad words and curse words and you will not do it. And they proceed to make fun of you and soon all over school you find yourself looked down upon and laughed at. Don't you lose heart. Listen to me now. Don't you lose heart. The Lord said rejoice and be exceeding glad. Great is your reward in heaven. For those of you that are a little older, when that professor tries to force evolution down your throat, and you in fact are such that he calls you a name, and he in fact defaces you amongst a whole auditorium of students simply because you won't bow to the God of evolution, don't you lose heart. You stand squarely on what you know to be true. You listen to what's taught, but you also know what the Bible has to say about it. And when your friends who are about your same age encourage you to have sex outside marriage, don't you give in. You stand fully knowing that what the Bible proclaims is that's reserved for the beauty of marriage and nowhere else. Even though they make fun of you, call you a mama's boy, let them talk. Again, great is your reward in heaven. To those of us that are older, when that co-worker is one who asks us a question, and when we, in a desire to state what the Bible has to say, talk about things that touch the subject of politics or touch the subject of divorce and remarriage, and when they proceed to laugh at us and make fun of us and consider us as outcasts and forsake friendships with us, we mustn't lose heart. We must appreciate we are in the same position those prophets of Old Testament lore were. Notice again, that's what finishes verse number 12. 
For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. When you and I considered the long line of prophets of the Old Testament, what were some of the situations in which they found themselves? Jeremiah boldly in chapter 7 stood at the temple and preached the truth of God that they were going to captivity. People didn't like it, and neither did the leaders. He was thrown into a dungeon for it. Was he persecuted? Absolutely. Almost to the point of death, he didn't have bread or water. However, when he was released from that dungeon, he went right back and preached the same message that sent him right back to the dungeon again. Jeremiah was a bold man. Where, was his, where were his interests? In the God of heaven and in God's message. And he did not forsake that message just because the people didn't like it. What about Ezekiel? Here we find a man who himself was in captivity with the other people of Israel. And as such, he had a powerful message to share. Thankfully, it often had words of encouragement within it. But from time to time, as it was in chapter 16, he directly told the people, you're here because you sinned. You forsook God. And you brought this mess upon yourself. Did they like it? They didn't. Did that change his message? It didn't. What about Amos? In Amos chapter 7, he stood boldly before the king and proclaimed the reality of the sins of what had been brought about in part by his leadership. The high priest slapped Amos on the face and said, We don't want to hear that preaching anymore. You go back home. Amos said, I'll leave, but I want you to know a prophet of God's been here and what I've said is going to come true. And it did. You see, God's word does not forfeit because many people don't like it. And when you and I have the fortitude and the courage and the bravery, just like Daniel, when he was told not to pray, and yet he still did every day, three times a day, his allegiance was with God. May ours be the same. As we've studied then all nine of these Beatitudes, we've been reminded that they're timeless, absolutely timeless. They are as needful today in my life and yours as they were then. For when you and I exhibit these in our life, we'll be an individual whom the world can't help but notice because it'll be a person who has built himself on a foundation far higher than anything this world has to offer. In conclusion to this whole series of lessons, I have chosen to make statements like these. Specifically, we've seen today the blessing pronounced upon the peacemakers, the seventh of the Beatitudes, and numbers 8 and 9, those that are persecuted specifically for the cause of righteousness. Ever being reminded that as Christians we shall find ourselves in these positions, may we in fact be encouraged by the beauty of what God has, has to say to us. In closing then the series on the Beatitudes, our person has been greatly challenged to be a better person as we think about, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And finally, blessed are ye. When men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. 
Friend, you can't suffer persecution as a Christian unless you are a Christian. Have you come humbly bowing yourself, if you will, before the commandments of the gospel? If you haven't done that, today would be a perfect day to do it. Jesus demands, requires, that in order to be a Christian, you must hear the Word of God. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God with all your heart. Repent of the sins that have driven you from His side. Make a statement publicly of the belief you had in step number two. Confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Upon so doing, then, you are a candidate to be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could assist you in that way today, how glorious a day it would be for you. If you have become a Christian, but you have not lived in such a way that these Beatitudes are reflective of your life, come back to your first love then. Make a statement so that others would know of your desire to repent of those sins and confess them. And so you could be welcomed in a good standing with not only us, but with God Himself. If we could pray with you, we'd be happy to do that. Let either of the things, if they occur in your life, be quickly addressed as you would let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.